What if we could produce safe, edible food with nothing more than air, water, and electricity? What if we do all that while dramatically reducing the number of resources to make this food? If this sounds like the stuff of science fiction, it's not. The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, awarded seven researchers at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign a four-year, $10.4 million research grant to turn this vision into a reality. These researchers are Principal Investigator Ting Liu and co-PIs Mohan Sharkran, Keith Codwallader, Paul Kennis, Christopher Rao, Yang Su Jin, and Vijay Singh. Three of these researchers, Professor Liu, Professor Shankaran and Professor Kadwalader join me today to talk about the interdisciplinary nature of this complex project, the challenge of making their food appetizing, and how it will aid those on the battlefront and maybe even reach Mars one day. My first guest, Professor Ting Liu, is no stranger to tackling the challenges of food production using an unconventional approach. He was a co-recipient of the 2021 Future Insights Prize for his conceptual work transforming end-of-life plastics into edible food. He's also affiliated with the Realizing Increased Photosynthetic Efficiency Project, known as RIPE, at the Carl R. Woese Institute for Genomic Biology. As a PI for this current project with DARPA, he is turning to what is all around us to meet the demands of food production and a growing global population. Joining me now is Professor Liu, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Not a problem at all. So tell me, why was it important for you to take on an ambitious project like this one when you applied for DARPA's grant? Well, uh, food insecurity is a grand challenge worldwide. Although our society has made a tremendous advance in modern era, however, there are over 800 million people that suffer from hunger. In other words, one in every nine people go to bed with empty stomach each night. Notably, over 21% of children and age 5 are stunted, and 33% of women at the reproductive age suffer from anemia. Importantly, this hunger population is not declining. Instead, it is up by 12 million each year. The problem can also become exaggerated by different factors, including conflicts, economic shocks, and public health crises. For example, studies show that the COVID-19 pandemic had led to an increase of over 200 million hungry population. Making it worse is that arable land continued to lose due to erosion and climate change. Meanwhile, the world population is expected to reach 10 billion by 2050. So as engineers, we have the obligation and the privilege to address challenges saving our societies. Food insecurity is one of such global challenges that require novel solutions. My colleague and I have thus proposed to develop an integrated technology that allows us to produce nutritious, palatable, and safe food from minimal resources anywhere on the planet. If successful, this technology will provide a programmable and portable approach for food production. In addition, it will address several key limitations associated with the current practice of food production. For example, agricultural farming and the livestock raising often require significant feedstock, labor, and infrastructure. Along with long harvest time, they are also subject to climate and disease. Moreover, even after the food are produced, there is a need for lengthy transport, protection, and preparation, along with complex waste management. We believe that by producing food on demand and on site, our technology could potentially address these issues, therefore enabling a more sustainable way of food generation. 
So can you tell me a little more about your platform's process of turning three ingredients, and if I'm right, this is air, water, and electricity, into food or into a food supplement. That's the case for this project, right? Yes, our platform is an integrated and a portable production line that uses three ingredients to generate nutritious and tasty food. This may sound impossible, but we believe it is feasible. We designed our platform to have four major steps. Step one is carbon and nitrogen fixation. Carbon and nitrogen are the two most important elements in food. We are working to capture carbon dioxide from air and then use electrochemistry to convert it into organic acids. Meanwhile, we use a cutting-edge plasma technology to fix nitrogen from air into ammonia. The resulting acid and ammonia serve as organic feedstock. Step two is nutrient production. We will utilize a set of microorganisms to consume the organic substrate from fixation to produce cellular biomass. This biomass serves as raw material for food sources. The material uh, will have a full and complete nutrient profile, including protein, carbohydrate, fat, and digestive fibers, along with various micronutrients. Step three is flavor synthesis and format development. To ensure our food is palatable, we will combine string engineering with food processing technology to produce molecules that yield three basic flavor types, including sweet, aromatic, fruity berry, and savory meaty. In theory, combination of these basic types can offer a nearly infinite number of flavors. Additionally, we will use food processing technology to generate different formats, such as shake, gel, and jerky. Step four is system integration. We plan to combine individual steps into a streamlined system that allows food production continuously. We will conduct stress tests for the production chain and further demonstrate the productivity and the scalability of the systems. We feel very lucky that our team is highly multidisciplinary and has the expertise in synthetic biology, electrochemistry, plasma technology, metabolic engineering, food science, and bioprocess engineering. We are developing the research through three phases of work, from concept demonstration in phase one to technology advancement in phase two, and integration and expansion in phase three. I love everything that's going into this. I really do. Also, if there's coffee flavors, I'll be on board for all this, but definitely for coffee flavors. <laughs> so I imagine there are other applications for this type of production in the future, such as supplemental aid for the military and the like. So where and how would you like to see your research used decades and even centuries from now? Well, thanks for asking these very important questions. Our platform has several unique features. First, it requires only minimal resources for food production, which allows to remove major limitations associated with agricultural farming and livestock raising. Second, the resulting food will be both nutritious and palatable. It contains a full spectrum of nutrients and can be tailored in terms of its flavor and format for different needs. Third, the platform we are developing is portable and can be deployed to different locations and regions. These three features really open a number of exciting possibilities. 
for the military the platform of a possibility to produce food in battlefield, on naval ship, or even in remote regions where resources are limited and logistics is challenging. In fact, food supply has been and remains to be a major challenge for the military. General Eisenhower once said that you will not find it difficult to prove that battles, campaigns, and even wars have been won or lost primarily because of logistics. General Robert Barrow also made a similar comment, stating that amateurs talk about strategy and tactics, professionals talk about logistics and uh, sustainability in warfare. As an alternative to traditional food production, our platform may offer a unique option for the military to enhance their resilience of logistics. In addition, the platform could be used for missions relating to disaster relief. For example, when a region is hit by hurricane or earthquake, food supply typically become challenging due to the lack of worker and the, the breakdown of infrastructures. If we can deploy the system we're developing to these regions, we may generate edible food on site, thereby saving both the time and cost that are crucial under these situations. Looking into the future, I hope that the platform will be continuously advanced to be robust and scalable so that it will become a powerful way of food production to support the growth of human population as well as the sustainability of the planet, both for us and for our children. Ultimately, our platform might offer a solution for food supply, for space travel, and the, the colonization of Mars one day. I cannot wait for that day to come. Sounds like you have a, a very promising future with this project for all levels of society, both very far into the future. I hope so, yeah. Food is the most fundamental need for humans. Mm -hmm. So um, addressing this such a basic element in life, it could hopefully you know, could impact not only me or you, but probably the entire society. As well as uh, every culture. Thank you so much for your time, Professor. That was very enlightening. Thank you for having me. My next guest is a Donald Bigger Bullet Professor in the Department of Nuclear, Plasma, and Radiological Engineering. And he is the Associate Head of Graduate Programs there. Welcome, Professor Shankaran. Thanks for having me, Lauren. So I understand you and your team are working in the first focus group with Professors Liu, Kinnis, and Rao. Could you tell me a little bit about your lab's role in using plasma to convert nitrogen to ammonia for this project? And what are some of the challenges? Sure, yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to talk a little bit about our role. Our role in the project is to make a fixed form of nitrogen, primarily ammonia, using only air, water, and electricity. The ammonia is then used as a substrate by microorganisms in Professor Ting Lu's part of the project to make the biomass. Uh, there's also a parallel part. My collaborator, Professor Paul Kennis, in the Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering Department is making a fixed form of carbon acetate that's also used as a substrate along with the ammonia for the microorganisms. So I want to give a little bit more background on this topic. You mentioned, you know, what are the challenges in this area? Um, you might be aware that ammonia is one of the world's most important chemicals. It's already used as a fertilizer to grow all the food that sustains our world's population. So the synthesis of ammonia has been intensely studied for a very long time. The current industrial process that makes ammonia is the Haber-Bosch process, which reacts nitrogen and hydrogen gases at very high pressures and high temperatures. The hydrogen gas 
that's needed as a feedstock comes from methane. So because of the heat that's required and because of the methane, which has carbon in it, the Haber-Bosch process leads to a huge amount of greenhouse gas emissions. That's why even making the fertilizer for our food has a huge carbon footprint in our world today. So even before our project started, where we want to try to make ammonia for feeding microorganisms, people have been trying to think about how to make ammonia more sustainably if we can use water and electricity instead of hydrogen gas and avoiding heat that comes from fossil fuels. So one of the main approaches that people have been looking at is an electrochemical process that would be using electricity that could convert nitrogen to ammonia in water. But it's been very challenging to do it this way. And unlike the conversion of carbon dioxide by electrochemical processes, which Professor Kennis is one of the world's foremost authorities on, uh, people have not been able to convert nitrogen to ammonia at all by an electrochemical process. So that's where my group came in. We have been working on low temperature plasmas for some time. A plasma is an ionized gas, which creates a lot of unique reactive and energetic species. And more recently, uh, we started forming these plasmas in contact with liquid water so we can bring in those chemical species to do various types of reactions. So we tried converting nitrogen using this scheme and we were very surprised and excited a couple years ago when we found that we could make ammonia using this process. So again, the overall ingredients are air, water, and electricity. The process is at atmospheric pressure and room temperature. And we use a plasma as one of our electrodes to drive the process. Now there's one really interesting historical tidbit here. Before the Haber-Bosch process, which was developed in the 1930s, in the early 1900s, the very first commercial process to fix nitrogen to a fertilizer type product was the Birkeland I process, which was actually a plasma that reacted the nitrogen oxygen air to make nitrates. And the reason that that process didn't survive and Haber-Bosch eventually superseded it is that it was driven by electricity. And at that time, electricity was really hard to get. It was really expensive and it, it wasn't on a large scale. So when the Haber-Bosch process came around, it just basically took over because heating was much easier than electricity. So I, I wanna use the analogy, it's kind of like the electric car. So the electric car actually came out before the internal combustion engine and, and that type of way to, to power a car. Electric cars were around in the early 1900s, but they were limited. You know, battery technology wasn't as evolved as it is today. And so when the internal combustion engine came around, you know, that, that took off and that's the way we've always had cars operated. Um, but now we're kind of going back. And so I wonder if we might also go back to an electrically driven process to fix nitrogen eventually. Interesting, okay. So I know you mentioned about your carbon footprint and I know you've also mentioned electric cars and speaking of green energy here. So your group is also focused on the use of clean energy in addition to addressing food on demand. So how are you and your team trying to approach this issue? I'm guessing this electrical process or is part of that, right? Yes, that's correct. So this topic of fixing nitrogen to make ammonia and then using it as a substrate to feed these microorganisms is just one of many projects we have that is in this space of using electricity for chemical transformations. So this is a, a much broader topic. Many groups in the world are working on this and our specific focus is using plasmas as the type of chemical process that converts electricity to some chemical. So I'll give you some examples. So I mentioned briefly that for Haber-Bosch they need hydrogen and the hydrogen comes from methane. Well, the specific way that that process works is they do something called uh, methane reforming, where the methane is reacted with either oxygen or water, and you produce hydrogen, but you also end up getting CO2 
as a byproduct, and that, that's where the greenhouse gas emissions come from for Haber-Bosch. Currently, people are trying to find ways to make hydrogen from methane without reacting it with oxygen or water. And if you do that, you would just get carbon, and the carbon wouldn't necessarily become carbon dioxide. So it's a much easier way to, to make hydrogen and avoid the, the greenhouse gases. But reacting methane by itself is really difficult, and plasmas are one of the very few ways that you can break methane to make hydrogen and, and avoid using oxygen or water. So that's a, a project that we're working on in my group as well. Another example is uh, steel making. So one of the critical steps in making steel, which is one of the most important materials in the world for infrastructures and things like that, is to reduce the raw iron ore to metal iron. And then you eventually can turn it into to forms of steel. So the current way that iron oxide is reduced to iron is to use a high temperature process with a gas that can reduce the iron oxide like carbon monoxide. But again, a byproduct of that is that you get carbon dioxide. And so steel is also one of the largest carbon footprints of any process in the world. So people have already started to think about avoiding the carbon monoxide and switching to hydrogen, which would not lead to these carbon emissions. But hydrogen is much less reactive. It requires even higher temperature if you want to reduce iron oxide. Plasmas can uh, activate hydrogen into some other species that make it more reactive, and you can lower the temperature for reducing iron oxide. So this is also uh, an area that my group is working on. And then a final example is in organic synthesis. So there's a lot of organic molecules that are used as drugs and have medicinal applications. A lot of these organic molecules are made by using a metal catalyst. I've been collaborating with Professor Jeff Moore in chemistry to try to use our plasma process to initiate these reactions in organic chemistry. And we would avoid using these metals as a catalyst. And these metals sometimes can be expensive, rare. They can also be toxic, so you have to find ways to get rid of them also leads to an environmental impact. So we want to try to eliminate those metals, just use electrons, which are supplied by a plasma, and we think that would be a, a clean way to do this type of chemistry. I really love how there's so many different people from so many different fields coming together to make this happen. And I think that's one thing that really stands out about this project is how interdisciplinary it is. Not only that, but they're all here at the University of Illinois. So I would love to hear more about the dynamics of how your groups both work separately and together and how you communicate with each other. I mean, it sounds like it's a lot of moving parts. I wanted to first highlight how interdisciplinary our team is. Uh, we have faculty from chemical and biomolecular engineering department, bioengineering department. I'm in the nuclear, plasma, and radiological department. And we also have faculty from the agricultural and biological engineering department. In addition, um, in this DARPA program overall, there are three teams which one of us is us, but we're the only team where all the PIs and all the researchers that are working on the project are at one place at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. So I, I think it's pretty amazing you know, how diverse our community is that we can have all the different parts of this project all at, at one place. And I think this lends itself to how we can collaborate. So we have group meetings uh, every few weeks, which is the whole team, and we rotate who presents at those meetings. And the best part is us PIs don't present. So it's our postdoc and grad students that get up and present and they rotate. So actually our team is up this week on Wednesday and then you know next week will be Professor Liu's group that'll present and then keep 
rotating around. In addition to that, um, in my own group, the folks that are working on this project meet regularly. So we meet just about every week. And then we kind of break up into subgroups. So I'm, I'm here with Professor Liu um, as part of our role in the project. And the two of us and our uh, respective team members also meet to talk about how to work together. And we currently are working together. We've already taken the nitrogen products that we've made from air, water, and electricity using this plasma process and tested them on his microorganisms and actually shown that, that we can start to grow biomass using this approach. So uh, I think the fact that we're all here, proximity matters, we can easily see each other, we can go to each other's labs, and we can push this project forward. Certainly makes things easier. Thanks so much for joining me, Professor. I sincerely appreciate Thank it. Thank you for having me again. My final guest is a professor of food chemistry in food science and human nutrition at the College of Agricultural, Consumer, and Environmental Sciences. He is a 2020 fellow of the Institute of Food Technologists and a 2021 fellow of the American Chemical Society. Joining me now is Professor Cadwallader. Welcome, Professor. Appreciate the opportunity to talk about our project. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. So you work with the project's second focus group and are tasked with making these food supplements taste and smell good. Tell me, how do you and your team make this happen in your lab? Well, I work closely with Professor Young-Soo Jin. He's a yeast geneticist, and his job is to basically either genetically modify or otherwise adapt yeast to make different flavors. My job is to measure those target flavors, but we also find ourselves in a situation where we have to monitor all the flavors of all the biomass that we produce because we're going to have good flavors or desirable flavors, but we may also have off flavors. So we have to know the full flavor potential of the biomass that will be used to generate food. Uh, we, we use several methods like uh, gas chromatography, mass spectrometry to identify and characterize these compounds. My group also finds ourselves in a situation where we're developing savory flavors using yeast as the starting material and using a technique called autolysis which generates yeast extract. And yeast extract is used commonly in foods to give uh, like in soups and bouillons and things like that to give savory and brothy flavors. Okay, sounds very tasty. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what are some of the challenges you deal with in terms of turning these supplements into edible forms like shakes, gummy, jerky, and the like? Well, aside from the flavor challenges, which each of those may or may not have a different flavor, shakes generally are not considered savory, but you could make a savory one, well, that'd be unusual. Where, and same thing with gummies. Those would be more on the, what I say, indulgent flavor side or, or fruit flavor side. Whereas jerky is generally, although you could make a fruit jerky and there's something like that, like roll-ups and things like that, but most of the time people want a savory snack, salty and savory, so two different flavor challenges challenges, but that's not the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is the form. Our biomass has unknown characteristics at this time since we actually haven't generated it yet. So we do have target nutrition profiles, but we need functionality. That is, we need the biomass to be, be able to be molded or formed into these various types of food analogs, especially if you're looking at a meat analog. We have to have a, a certain amount of cross-linking of the proteins or gelation of the starch, things like that which uh, may require a little bit of going back and re-engineering or redesigning the fermentation to achieve those kind of functionalities. So where do you hope this type of food production will lead future generations? And what impact do you hope it will have on the world population's carbon footprint? Well, I believe the on-demand foods, especially from non-agricultural sources, so this, this process would be independent of agriculture, which is 
could be a big benefit globally, especially in areas where it's hard to grow food. Right. So you just need energy and water, essentially, and air, of course, for this process, at least theoretically. And so I think it has it has great potential, even possibly in space, for long-term missions where all you need is simple energy and, and water. And yet, of course, you have to have water and carbon dioxide, and there's plenty of carbon dioxide being formed in a capsule, right? So it should work. The uh, biggest challenge, though, is to make these products nutritious, but also delicious and with a variety of forms and flavors. So I think monotony is a big problem with consumers. They may like it, but they don't want to eat it every day if it's the same thing. And also, there's big, big issues possibly or problems with cultural differences and liking and so forth. So they have to be, I would say, somewhat neutral as far as if people have a certain something maybe it might be better if it's a form that they've never seen before, perhaps. So targeting jerky might work in some places, but other places in the world may never have seen it before. That may work actually to your advantage, but, but I think uh, novelty always works to your advantage. Oh, novelty almost always does. Because yeah. <laughs> you have nothing to compare against, no benchmark. Right. right. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Professor. Yeah. All right. If you would like to find out more about this topic, you can check out the fall 2023 edition of Limitless Magazine on our website, granger.illinois.edu.